that, let's go to the scriptures and let's go to Luke chapter 1. I want to read again some of the passages that were read during our candle lighting. And I want to read a few verses from the classic Christmas texts. And we'll start in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So, as you heard, the theme of this week's Advent reflection is love. But before we think about that specifically, and before we think about the avalanche of the love of God that was released into the world through this specific moment in history, I have kind of a, an annoying question to ask. Do we actually believe this part of the story? I mean, do, do people actually believe in a virgin birth? Church websites, if you visited them recently, you've noticed that churches post a beliefs section or a statement of faith section on their websites, and they do that for a couple of reasons. They're trying to let everybody know that we are this kind of a church, we're not that kind of a church. Or they want to let you know, website visitor and hopefully church guest, that we actually believe in the Bible, that we're orthodox. Or they want us to know that this is the way we position certain doctrines and this is where we emphasize and this is how we handle it. So let, let me read you a couple snippets of some statements of faith. Here's a, here's a little blurb from One and All Church in San Dimas. They write, <clears throat> We believe God has revealed himself to man in the person of Jesus Christ. He's fully God and fully man. The eternal and only begotten Son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. So they believe it. Here's Purpose Church in Pomona. Jesus Christ is God's Son, begotten of the Holy Spirit, and born of a virgin, Mary. Here's a new song in San Dimas. We believe that Jesus Christ is God's eternal Son. He is true God and true man, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Here's Hope City Church in Claremont. This is from our official church bylaws. It says, we believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in his virgin birth, in his sinless life, in his miracles, in his vicarious and atoning death through his shed blood, in his bodily resurrection, in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and in his personal return to power and glory. So apparently, we believe this too. So so apparently, we actually believe in this story, in this narrative, in this idea of a virgin birth bringing the Son of God into the world. We're not alone in believing this. In fact, one of the oldest creeds or statements of faith that the church has is the Apostles' Creed. Um, they call it that because it's believed that it, it, it went clear back to the time of the original apostles, and it was their teachings that gave rise to the tenets of this creed. I think our earliest um, record of the formation of this creed is around 150 AD, but I want to read to you probably the most common version of this creed, and I think it'll be up on the screen as well, but it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. (laughs) That's a pretty fantastic set of beliefs, isn't it? Especially the part about the virgin birth. Are are we crazy to believe that? Because apparently we do. And you all said, yes, you do, before you even knew my punchline. So, are we, are we crazy to believe this? You know, one of the things that is so amazing and genius about the Bible is the way it opens itself up to criticism. The Bible never presents these stories in a way where it's trying to convince everybody that it's exactly true. The Bible is famous for opening itself up to criticism. In fact, in this story, Joseph, the one who was chosen to raise the Son of God, did not believe the story. Uh, Let me read you from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And I think that sounds like a very truncated version of the story. There's a lot that was left out of that story. There's a lot of backstory that doesn't get told in the story. Um, How could you do this to me? How in the world could you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? And by the way, how stupid do you think I am to believe a story like this? I mean, if you're going to betray me, can you at least have the dignity to tell me the truth? Joseph didn't believe the story. He didn't believe it until he also had a supernatural encounter that confirmed it. And you know what? That's kind of an inbuilt apologetic or defense of this story. The Bible doesn't present this as if no one should ever question it. The Bible presents it telling us that the people closest to it did question it. 
And they questioned it because they were smart people. Believing in God doesn't make you dumb or superstitious. Joseph knew how babies were made. And he knew that he wasn't the one that made that baby. The Bible opens itself up to criticism, trusting that the story itself will ultimately defend itself. And since we're talking about Mary, um, here's another example of how the scripture opens itself up to criticism. If you think about the essential elements of our faith, if we could extract like the four main pillars or moving parts of the story of the gospel, we would have to say that the most important, the primary events would be, number one, the incarnation. That's the idea of God stepping into time and space and history as Jesus of Nazareth. Number two would be the crucifixion, Jesus dying for the sins of the world on the cross. Number three would be the resurrection, where Christ defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. And then number four would be the ascension, when Jesus returned back to the Father in heaven before sending the Holy Spirit. So those would be the four key pillars of our faith. And we only know details of the first three because of female witnesses. Mary was the primary witness to the incarnation. The women at the foot of the cross were the primary witnesses to report about the crucifixion. Now, um, John was there too, but all the other guys left. So it was mostly the women. The women were the first to see and, and discover the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene was the first person to see the risen Jesus after he had been raised from the dead. Over in John 4, earlier, of course, the very first time Jesus ever openly admitted his identity as the Messiah was in a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And in Acts chapter 16, it tells us that the very first European convert to Christianity was a woman named Lydia. Now, that might not mean much in 2023, so you might be thinking, why are you taking up Christmas morning reminding us of that? That, that? that might not mean anything in this day and age, but in that day and age, that was massive. In that cultural moment, if you were trying to build a case that was credible and believable, you would not position women in the story in that way. You certainly wouldn't do it if you were making up a story. If you were making up a myth to deceive the nations, you would not position your primary witnesses that way. In fact, last Sunday, Don told us that in that day, shepherds were so disrespected and looked down on that they often weren't considered credible witnesses in a legal proceeding. And that was true of women, too. You know, in this day, there was actually a prayer that was published and circulated and, and practiced where devout male Jews would pray and say, I thank God I was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. That, that, that was the culture. In fact, we can even see how that culture and that cultural moment affected later tellings of the story. This is really interesting to me. I've always thought it was was. Curious, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is giving a pretty detailed account of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. So who did Jesus show up to 
after he was raised from the dead. And, and here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15.3. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And this is such a genius passage because Paul is saying there's countless witnesses that can tell us if this is true or not. But when I read the story, I always think, what happened to Mary? Where's Mary Magdalene? Jesus didn't appear to the apostle Peter first. He appeared to Mary. What happened to the women? Um, Paul didn't have an issue with women. Paul fills his letters with affirmations and commendations of women. In fact, he calls several of them his his co-laborers. And yet this was a a cultural moment. And this was a a time in history where where if, if you're trying to present the most credible case possible, you wouldn't position your, your witness is there. But here's what I love. God never seems to care about those things. God never seems to care about that. God presents the least likely as the most prominent. God presents the, the least possible as the most actual, intangible. And there's another inbuilt apologetic for the virgin birth in this text. When Mary visited her much older cousin, Elizabeth, remember Elizabeth had been barren during her childbearing years, but then later in life had gone through menopause. The, the, how many of you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, the scripture tells us that, that she was very old. I loved last Sunday I love Don's message when he was telling us about all the physical pain he went through during Nancy's pregnancies. It was hilarious. And I I can't wait to hear what he's going to tell us about menopause someday. But, But Elizabeth couldn't have children, but then she did have a son. And in her story, an angel appeared to her husband and prophesied that your wife, who's long past the stage of being able to have children, will bear a son. You're going to name him John. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. Zechariah went home, lit some candles, got some roses, and it was more than a prophetic word that had to happen for this to happen. But the angel spoke, God spoke, she got pregnant, and then look what happens in in Luke 1.41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Mary says, hello. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And this additional witness testifies to the fact that you're pregnant. I don't even know that yet, but you're pregnant and you are carrying the Lord. 
stepped into human history. The scripture is so brilliant and genius where it, it invites us to criticize and it offers inbuilt apologetics. But, but yes, if a person approaches this text with only a naturalistic view of the world, if a person approaches this text believing that miracles are not possible, there's, there's no supernatural. The metaphysical is not a reality. If somebody approaches the text that way, then, then no, they're not going to be able to believe this. But, but if a person is open to the possibility of there being a God, if a person is open to the possibility that this genius, detailed, unbelievable universe was actually created by God then this immaculate conception, as we call it, is not only possible, it's not even the most remarkable thing about the story. If there is indeed the possibility of a God that could make this and create this and make us procreators of life, it's not that crazy to think that that God could create a life in this way. What is far more amazing is to think that that God would actually enter into human history. That that God would actually want to pursue you and me and the generations. His entrance started small, like a snowball that starts an avalanche, or like a baby in the womb. And it was revealed in the smallest, least likely places to the least significant people in society. An unwed teenage girl became the primary witness of the incarnation. Joseph was a pretty amazing guy. Joseph, it says he was devout and he was descended from King David, which means that if history had gone differently, Joseph might have been royalty. And yet this man was willing to embrace the questions, the suspicion, the judgments, the knowing looks, the stigma of raising a, a child who, who knows who the dad was and was not biologically his. Shepherds were the ones that heard the first announcements literally from heaven about the birth of this Savior. And shepherds found him lying in a manger in a barn. You know, I think that if my wife was pregnant... And she had all C-sections, but I think if she was pregnant and we went to a hotel and there was no room for us, I would make some noise. And somebody would offer up their room. Somebody would say, here, please. Uh, but, but that didn't happen with them. He, he was literally born in a barn. If Mary ever got mad at him when he was a kid, it's like, shut the door. Were you born in a barn? He could have said yes. <laughs> you were there. You remember. These shepherds show up in a barn. They have to step over cow spit to kneel down to see this newborn king. There is not any person in all of human history, no matter how humble their situation, that cannot find a connection point with Jesus. There was nothing pretentious. There was nothing unapproachable about his birth. When he was born, he went to the temple, his temple, by the way, and they carry this baby in there, and two very elderly people are the only ones that recognize what's happening. 
In the middle of worshipers worshiping God in the temple, God enters the temple as a baby. And two elderly people who have devoted their lives to worship and prayer recognize who he is. So they rush over to him and they prophesy over him. And then for the next 30 years, nobody knows who he is. Till his cousin John baptizes him in the muddy, shabby waters of the Jordan River. And then says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in his ministry, he related with poor people, despised people, physically broken people, demon-afflicted people. He welcomed children. He honored sinners. He forgave betrayers. And he embraced questions and suspicions about his pedigree and his lineage. See, everything about Jesus' life started small. God is never afraid of small. God is never afraid of insignificant. God is never afraid of something that's seemingly impossible because God trusts that the story will defend itself. It, it started small. Um, but, but like a seed, like a, the triggering of an avalanche, it spread from the small to every corner of the world. Yes, Jesus had dinner with tax collectors, but he also had dinner with the religious elite. Yes, he did miracles for the poor, but he also healed the servant of a Roman centurion. Uh, he told his followers they would testify before governors and kings, and then he modeled that when he spoke in front of Pontius Pilate. And oh, what a moment. Jesus is on trial. He had five trials, by the way unjust. He's been beaten. He's bound. He's standing before Pontius Pilate. But all of a sudden, there's a gigantic shift, and it is the Roman Empire on trial before the King of Kings. The Apostle Paul was profoundly educated, super educated. And he took this gospel from Jerusalem into the Near East, into Europe, and even into the headquarters of the Caesar himself in Rome. In the fourth century, as the avalanche continued, the Roman emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. There's nobody higher than the Roman emperor. In that day, the Roman emperor would have eclipsed the president of the United States. There's nobody higher than that position. And the gospel even reached him. One of my favorite um, psalms, I, just, I love this image in Psalm 95, verse 3. That says, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. And then listen to this imagery. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. His wingspan touches both. No matter how low you go, his hand reaches lower. And no matter how high you climb, his hand extends even higher. Um, his birth started small but it triggered an avalanche that is still touching lives and still altering family trees and destinies. That's why popular writers like John Eldridge refer to the birth of Jesus as an invasion. There's a Swiss theologian, you'll like his name, Hans Urs von Baldazar. It's so fun. I had to practice it like 40 times. Hans Urs von Baldazar. He said that Christmas is not, it's not an event in history. Christmas was the invasion of time by eternity. 
People who truly understood what was happening realized this wasn't just a baby born so that he could save. This was an invasion of the kingdoms of this world by the kingdom of God. Some people recognized it, like King Herod. King Herod realized what was happening. Wait a minute. that There's another king of the Jews that's being announced. I'm the king of the Jews. And that prompted Herod to engage in genocide. Remember, he ordered the massacre of all the baby boys in the Bethlehem area. And so in the middle of our tender and our sweet, reflective Christmas moments, we have something that we call the massacre of the innocents. Because in the middle of this tender moment, there was an invasion. And that invasion was met with a rebellion and an uprising that caused an upheaval and a hemorrhage in the world. The the kingdom's invasion into the kingdoms of this world started small, like leaven, like a seed, like a child's lunch that multiplied to feed a multitude. And it's grown into an avalanche. And the avalanche that Jesus triggered was an avalanche of love. I love the quote from Napoleon Bonaparte that says, Jesus Christ founded his empire on love, and at this very hour, millions of people would die for him. Anytime someone gets caught up in this avalanche, they change. One of the other apologetics for the legitimacy of this message is when someone is truly gripped by this, they change for the better. The unfaithful change toward fidelity. The arrogant learn to love humility. The greedy and the self-centered become generous. The the hoarding become givers. The lost feel found. The lonely come home. The bound taste freedom. The helpless and the despairing start to breathe again. There are certainly deviant strains to the avalanche. There are religious people that are judgy and and unloving and harsh, and they don't look like the Christ of this story. But those are offshoots. If you picture an avalanche just charging down the hill, there are offshoots on the side, but those are deviant strains. And those don't last long term. Because the critical mass and the heart and the soul of this movement looks like Jesus. And changes the world. The, The movement that Jesus started was founded on love, Love for God, love for others, and it is supremely powerful. I was even thinking a nerdy thought this week. It's more powerful than dragons. I read a quote from J.R. Tolkien. I'll probably blog on this this week, probably. Tolkien wrote, It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations, especially if you live near him. (laughs) Anyone who gets near this movement... The, the, the true essence of this movement changes. It's near. And we get to be a part of it. And when we get caught up in it, it, it can catch other people up in it. I, I love the verse that was read this morning that we've heard a million times. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. You know, our world has such a backwards view of that verse and of God. God is not making people perish. God is not making our world perish. Our world is perishing. Paths in the world lead to ruin. Every single one of us could say, yes, I've been there. I've experienced it. 
the offer of that verse is life. The offer of that verse is, is there's a path and there's a way forward. Is that love coursing through your soul? Is that avalanche at work in you? I know at times in our life, we can feel an ebb and a flow to our faith. And sometimes we're on top of the world and, and we're skiing on top of the avalanche. At other times, it feels like we're being chased by an avalanche. Um, and there are times that it's just a trickle. But if we, if we are able to see the power in the small beginnings and open our heart up again, we could experience a force and a wave and a power of the love of God in our lives this year that could radically change our year. I personally, I don't want to just put 2023 on repeat. I had some really great things in 2023. I don't want to live 2023 over again. I think there's some people, they've lived the same year the last 10 years. So the new year really just means let's just do it again. There's more. There are doors that God wants to open. There are doors that he wants to shut. There are really good goodbyes that need to be had. There are hellos that you've been waiting for forever that are in front of you. There are opportunities that you've been waiting for but you've given up on. There are doors that you've been trying to shut, but no matter how hard you try, it keeps springing back open that God wants to shut this year. This could be a true new year if we position ourselves to get caught up in the movement of this avalanche. I want to read to you in closing from Mary's song. After Mary's interaction with Elizabeth, she either sang or spoke, we don't know which, but she, she communicated some words that we've come to call the Magnificat. And Magnificat is a word that means magnifies, because the opening words of her song say, my soul magnifies the Lord. And here's what she spoke, and here's what happens when this avalanche catches up to people. Let me read this and then we'll pray. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. That would mean to you and to yours. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And that, of course, would be the oppressive rich, the self-centered rich. And he's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. God, would you... This week, in our final days before Christmas, and our final run of 2023, would you open our eyes to see the love of God all around us? Sometimes the idea of an avalanche of love sounds laughable because so many other things get highlighted. So many things that aren't a part of that movement get promoted, and it just seems like it's bleak and despair, but Lord, it's not. Open our eyes to see that this movement that you launched is still spreading to every part of our world, catching people up in love and wonder and awe and freedom and new beginnings. 
would you, Lord, make us carriers of your love? Let that avalanche be so alive in us that it catches other people up into it. Even this week with our families at Christmas, even in family reunions, even later today when we're with friends or relatives or family, let there be a movement in us that positively affects the people around us. Lord, if we have deviated from the way of love, draw us back to it. Lord, make us Joseph's and Mary's that aren't staggered by the word, but that orient our lives around the word. Lord, if we've harmed anyone, give us a chance to make things right. If we keep circling around things that are destructive for us, help us to to move on. And Lord, if there's any person here, if there's anyone here, Lord, who has yet to open their hearts to you, Lord, we do that right now. Holy Spirit, come into our life. It's okay if you start small. It's okay if you just plant a seed into our heart, but plant your seed of of life and destiny into the depths of our soul and let it blossom and let it flourish and let it produce the fruit of a changed life and a happy life and a purposed life in the middle of our world.